You have 24 minutes. Today, we are having a powerful conversation with Michael Kill, CEO of the NTIA, or Nighttime Industries Association in the UK. The NTIA is a trade association and membership organization that lobbies nationally to ensure that all nighttime industries and workers are heard, understood, and valued. The NTIA conducts research, challenges unfair treatments and attitudes, and champions for the collective nighttime sector, as you will hear. My name is Randall White, host and curator for 24 Hour Nation. Visit our website at 24hournation.com and follow us on social media at 24 Hour Nation. Michael Kill, the CEO of NTIA, the Nighttime Industries Association in the UK. During the pandemic, you became, as you have said, a national figurehead for the nighttime industries in the UK. But let's back up a bit. The NTIA was a young organization, I believe, when the coronavirus pandemic hit. And the pandemic helped bring the NTIA into, I think, a global spotlight. You came to this role. You created it. You came up through the music industry side or the club side. Tell us about you how the NTIA came about and what it was intended to do prior to the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I mean, my, my background is I, I started on the bar. Um, I actually worked in theatre prior to that and ah. uh, came to the bar and worked my way up in clubs as a promoter, owned my own space, uh, got into corporate marketing and, and developed from there. And I've had many sort of executive roles. So, uh, you know, from, from being a director at a university, commercial director at a university uh, with a large license space to becoming the, the chief executive in, in my current position. But the NTIA really was born through crisis. Uh, uh, if you remember many years ago, Fabric, which is an iconic venue in London, was closed down off the police, suggesting right. was, and and there was a big debate over accountability, uh, personal accountability and operator accountability. Um, and what happened was there was a fierce uh, debate which engaged many, many artists and broadened the scope into supporters of Fabric and put pressure on police in an immense way for them to come to the table and resolve the issues. Now, um, that was really the, the sort of crux point in terms of the embryonic stages of the NTIA. And what happened was a collective of operators and industry supporters in London and just sat there and said, well, listen, we can't have this happen again. We need to create an organization that is going to support and challenge and protect the industry out there, particularly in London. Um, and, and that's how it was born, really. And it it grew exponentially with with lots of conversations and engagements and drive through different members um and it's evolved over time it, it went from being something that was very front-facing business-wise to uh the the ecosystem representation that it houses now so there are no there are no limitations if you operate between 6 and 6 a.m in the morning 6 p.m and 6 a.m in the morning um or have businesses that attribute whether you're licensed non-licensed workforce etc ah. then you can you can be an active part of the NTIA, and and that's the way that we work. This we we look at everyone as an equal part and and a considered um, you know stakeholder in our industry. And and you know it's whether people decide to take the mantle up and drive forward. But you know we we absolutely um, given. 
that position and then me coming on as CEO literally a year before the pandemic um the pandemic hit and it all took us as a bit of a roller coaster and it was a make or break moment if I'm going to be quite honest sure I'm going to turn around and say that, uh, you know, we'd have been in the same position if it wasn't for the pandemic in many respects. But uh, I also have to take my hat off to the team and the people who worked very hard around us to make sure that we were front and centre and we were a voice and we were someone that people could come to and, and get advice from and gain support and interpretation of legislation and measure change, etc. And we, we formulated a very strong bond with our industry over that period, over two and a half years. We ingratiated ourselves in support and ensuring that there were no boundaries. Um, we we dismantled the membership thing and, and we looked at it as an overarching, everyone should be supported here. This is no time for you know, financial barriers, given the fi- financial complexities that we were faced with. We didn't know what the future looked like. And, you know, we rolled from there. And I, and I think what we've got is, is a trade body that operates from the ground up that are going to see this association grow um, to, to dizzy heights because we've got some amazing things lined up for the future. As you would say, as we would say in the state, you began to kind of get up in the face of government too, right? Because here was the nighttime industries and it's not just nightlife. I want to communicate to the folks that will be listening in the states. A lot of time here, we talk about nighttime economy or nighttime industries. People think, oh, you're talking about bars and restaurants. You're very yeah. inclusive, correct? You have transportation, healthcare. Yeah. One in one in nine workers in the UK works at night. Is that the statistic I've seen? That's right. I mean, the way that we, we sort of banded things where you have primary nighttime economy, which operations that happen and take their revenue between six and six. Right. Secondary businesses that take from six till six and operate outside. Uh, and then you've got non-licensed businesses like uh, food outlets, like, you know, boutique uh, pop-up restaurants to taxis to, you know, et cetera. And then you've got the workforce, which includes freelancers, et cetera. So we tried to to not not so much categorize, but let people understand how important that that sort of uh, that, that groups uh, are and, and the fact that we are all inclusive. You know, we, we don't exclude anyone. There are no uh, suggestions that if you are part of the nighttime economy or want to support if you're an active customer then you know we, we've got two brands here what we work with is the ntia which is industry based and save nightlife which is a uh, cic which is like a not-for-profit the way that that works is that's focused on culture and people so sure. what we do is we built a consortium of of people who are customers who love the nighttime economy and the culture that counterculture represents, as well as we have an industry body that, that collectively supports those people who enjoy. So, you know, our movement is phenomenal, really. Um, and Let Us Dance, which is a big campaign we did around electronic music. I want to ask you about that a bit. That's where I thought, okay, this is a very inspirational. Tell, tell us about Let Us Dance. All the best campaigns are modeled out of a uh, a beer in the pub and uh, we were talking about uh, the CRF funding which is our cultural department within government not including counterculture or electronic music within its funding exercise so to support businesses so uh, we initially called out um, the government and we had some quite robust arguments and they were sort of trying to interpret it in a very sort of clumsy way so we created letters dance uh, in a way to make it clear 
And uh, the ask was very simple, that electronic music, sound system music should be included in the cultural recovery fund so that everyone has an equal opportunity to survive and pitch and bid. And um, we launched this campaign, which we did in three weeks. Um, And it went from a small seed of an idea, which I was phoning for two weeks solid uh, agents and artists and everybody to get everyone on board to trending at number one on Twitter and 2.7 million sort of impressions. And uh, I mean, a phenomenon really and and still today i mean you know people talk about it and it, and I, I we laugh about it because when you if you saw the background of where it came from and how very loose and and uh, almost um nurtured it was from ground up it, it was it was huge and uh, yeah it's a real sort of pinnacle piece i think for everyone in the ntia for the work that they did around it and it it you know it served the purpose the what we found is the um the, the government culture department sent out a clarity a clarity listing every different type of music that it would include in crf and every type of electronic music was included within it so it, we won. in effect you created yeah you won you created change on crf means what cultural recovery fund so, so the, it was a government funding that went to nighttime business had previously not included electronic dance and 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 as a result of your initiative they went uh, oops yeah so what what it did <laughs> it included things like ballet classical music orchestras all that side of things through the funding and what we were saying is counterculture is not accommodated for in this so you had things like live music um but electronic wasn't considered it wasn't clear so we we battled to have it included and um you know, it's it's done a huge amount for so many people because clubs and venues and electronic music events were able to get access to that funding. And, you know, as we, we have conversations day to day, it, it's allowed many of those people to survive. And so I know, too, as well, the NTIA covers not just Great Britain. You have Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland is uh, yeah, we have uh, Northern Ireland. We're working with a partner in Northern Ireland, but we have a commission in Wales and Scotland. And we also have the NTIA in Australia as well. Very nice. Very nice. When are we going to have the NTIA US? Well, it's funny you should mention that. I mean, we're, we're trying to uh, get to a position in the UK where we're, uh, you know, we're driving hard and, and quite formidable in all the areas. Um, and we are looking at expanding. We are talking to some of the European countries. So US is definitely on the agenda. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of work to do. I mean, we're, we're already talking with different partners uh, in the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand uh, um, for, for lots of reasons. So it will come. But with uh, the development pathway at the moment is several years off so well and i remember when the uh, city of london issued its economic impact study uh, a few years back and they talked about the nighttime workforce and it was the first time i think people sat up and went really there there are that many people who work at night and that the nighttime industries collectively generate that much income and i don't think other places had yet considered this coalition that needs to form around all of the people who work at night because they took the first big hit Right. With COVID landed. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, look, we 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 did a report last year uh, and we found uh, the turnover for nighttime economy at 112 billion. 
annual turnover, uh, 1.94 million people employed. But we broke it down to uh, culture economy as well, nighttime culture economy at 425,000 employed and 46 billion in terms of turnover. But listen, staffing have been a huge issue for us. Um, We know that there is a gap. Uh, We know that we can get uh, general staff. It's that next stage in, that one that has, uh, you know, that that skill gap is where we, we sort of struggle in terms of security chefs, uh, et cetera, that are sort of fundamental to the sort of processes uh, for finite services, as well as sort of communication to general staffing. So, um, and we're still struggling, you know. Well, um, and that's universal too. That's kind of what I wanted to go go into this conversation with you about was about labor, not, not labor in terms of political party, but labor in terms of labor shortages. I read yesterday, for example, in uh, New York City, that companies are beginning to stop 24-hour operations because they can't find staff for the overnight workforce. What happened did, during the COVID, COVID pandemic at the peak of it? Did people go, you know, that was really a crappy job. I don't want to go back to that. Or I found other work. What's What, what happened and why aren't we getting people back? I, I, I'm, I'm going to sum it up in one word, uncertainty. If you can think about, uh, if I'm a member of security and I've been working in the security as a door security or member of door security in the UK, and I've been cut off for two years, and there is still uh, a very slow burn period with some challenges around cost inflation, certainty or uncertainty as it is, is is not going to give me the confidence to return as freely. The same way that investors aren't as fluid in terms of handing money over to our sector, and similar, the landlords have an uncertainty piece. They would rather look at change of use than potentially farm it out to a sector that is vulnerable to the next pandemic. And and I think that is really the way that we've summed this up. I mean, when we talk about security sector, there have been other influences that I think have made a difference. For instance, uh, over the two years, people have displaced. So you're going to get into a role that they can, you know, quite rightly say is, is something that they can guarantee revenue. You know, many people like the students, we're, we're one of the number one employees for under 30s. They are going to be looking for a job that's going to be consistent, whether it be fast food, whether it be retail, whatever it is. What we're trying to do is not only build confidence in the sector, bear in mind that Johnson turned around almost two and a half years ago and said, don't go to pubs, bars, restaurants and theatres. You know, for him to say something like that, we've never had that returned or reverted. So for us, there has been a lot of work in building confidence, letting people know that there's a certainty. We're building momentum. We're starting to gain confidence, but we've got a long way off. And what we're missing is that talent pipeline, which we had built over the course of many, many years that has been lost to different um, industries. And that's the bit that we're trying to build up. You've also got to remember that Brexit was a big part to play in it. Oh, that's right. You got two bricks through your window at the same time. Exactly. So while you talk about displacement on a domestic basis in terms of worker, you're also talking about people going back to their own countries in the knowledge that, you know, they don't want to stay here for two years uh, in the middle of a pandemic and be isolated and, and not have the money to fund themselves. So there are a lot of students, a lot of um, 
international workers. I mean, someone commented it's the first time they've went into Camden and hadn't heard an Australian accent, which tends to be the epitome of Camden's pub scene. So for us, we lost not only that international workforce, we also had challenges around uncertainty with the domestic workforce. And now what we're trying to do is draw draw those people back in. But there are challenges with regard to visas. We're seeing that with regard to artists, etc. I mean, the security sector is something like 80% pre-COVID resource. So we're about 20% short of where we used to things like protect duty, which is the counter terror movement coming into play at the end of this year, early next year, where we were going to need more security. We've got a real shortcoming and, Quite rightly, as you said, there are people unable to open kitchens, unable to serve people to the maximum proposition because they haven't got the staff to do it. And there are varying measures of it up and down the country. It definitely seems like the north is more challenging than the south. Um, But I think it resonates around major cities because that's where the confidence in job profile is going to be. What are the solutions then? And what 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 is NTIA doing to help this along? I noticed, you know, you you launched a few weeks back uh, the service industry helpline, uh, which is to help the emotional burden, I think, of this workforce that feels the uncertainty. Talk a little bit about that and talk about other things that are being done to restore the workforce. Well, we're working quite hard at the moment on on creating efficiencies around people accessing jobs. Um, So we're starting to build a platform at the moment that gives a more efficient position in terms of virtual interviewing and feedback so that it isn't about the physicality of turning up. It's about the review of CV, collective virtual uh, um, uh, interviewing, and then off the back of that, being able to decide and, and invite people in from that perspective. So we're looking at efficiencies. The other thing that we're looking at is funded uh, traineeships, apprenticeships. I mean, traineeships we've just launched at the moment uh, and we're pushing quite hard, which is a free 100-hour course, which would literally take you through the basics of hospitality, late nights economy, um, so that you can engage in um, taking up those roles um, and and presenting those to businesses outside or within our membership. So there's a lot of work going on uh, in terms of training, apprenticeships, working with things like um, small green shoots, which are uh, underprivileged children that want to move forward and become an active part. But I think it's about awareness as much as anything else. We need to let people know that we, we have, there are fantastic careers within our sector you know we have to end the uncertainty we've got to invest in our people invest in the ones that we have already but also then start using them to encourage people to come on board within the industry because i think our biggest asset are our workforce and uh, and our and, and one of the bigger assets that we have are our audiences if you think about it i mean you know let's let's crack down to government position i mean we can influence which we've seen in letters dance the youth vote is something that people are not considering when they're moving forward. And just through electronic music, let alone jobs, we can, you know, we've, we've made some big change. But the focus for us is awareness, communication, accessibility, and getting people trained and presented out there in our industry so that they can be taken up and, and given those opportunities, but ratified opportunities and treated very well. Because I think we, we have been subject to our industry not treating our staff as well as they should be. And some of the, the, the more prominent things around tipping and et cetera uh, have had to be resolved and, and still are to be resolved. But that's something we've focused very heavily on. 
Well, that's universal. That's not, that's everywhere. That's how comes a coalition like NTIA in the States makes a lot of sense. If, because I don't believe, I mean, we have the music presenters working together. We have the, some of the electronic dance groups working together. We have the cultural uh, entities working together. Restaurants are working together. Hotels are working together, but they're not all sitting at the same table, you know, yeah. saying collectively, we have a grander voice that cannot be ignored. And that seems to be the, the magic you have unlocked with NTIA. Well, it's, it's funny. I mean, look, we have those challenges over here in different guises. I think you, you've got to accept that uh, sometimes the proprietary nature of our industry and associations will always fall foul of us collectively coming together. Right. Um, really look at it on a on a granular note it's really to to the benefit of the government not to the industry so i think what we've got to do is find ways of opening doors and unlocking and you know some of the things that we've been doing around drink spiking where we've been looking at building because we've got 52 police forces up and down the country producing their own training ah. what we've done to bite-sized training so that they can top and tail what they're doing. So the accessibility is about collaboration, not about interference. And I think what, what you've really got to do is not, it's not about being the lead. It's about, you know, the collaboration and the collective nature of your position is the strength. So you've, you've got to, I always say you've got to shed a few pounds to be able to, to fit together. And, and sometimes you've got to concede, um, but for the greater good, as long as the greater good is about bringing everyone together. And we've, you know, we've done a good job of it. There's still a lot of work to do. There's still proprietary nature up and down the country in different guises and associations, but we're breaking those boundaries down every day, every week we move forward. And as long as we're getting traction, then, you know, I, I think that's, that's the key to it. But but someone's got to start. If anybody wants to learn more about the NTIA, can go to ntia.co.uk. You're also on Twitter and Facebook at We Are the NTIA. And you're on uh, Save the Nightlife on Instagram and also on LinkedIn. Michael Kill, I appreciate your time very much. And Randall, thank you for your support. And uh, it's fantastic to be able to speak to you. And hopefully at some point when I manage to get over to the US, uh, we'll try and make our way down and, uh, and meet you face to face. This has been Season 1, Episode 9 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Visit our website at 24hournation.com.